Hey guys, it's Sean, and when I wanna make better decisions or really think about how to make better decisions, who do I look to, who do I talk to? And that person is Annie Duke, who is the guest of today's podcast. And Annie is back for the third time. She was originally on episode 132 and then also on episode 215. And Annie is an author, a corporate speaker, and a consultant in the decision-making space, as well as a special partner focused on decision science at First Round Capital Partners, which is a seed stage venture fund. And we're here to talk a lot about quitting, which might sound odd, but let's think about it. We're so often told about grit. You got to persevere and grit through. And the funny thing about grit is while grit can get you to stick to the hard things that are worthwhile, grit can also get you to stick to the hard things that are no longer worthwhile. The trick is figuring out the difference. And Annie and I are going to speak a lot about quitting today and the power of knowing when to walk away. So I hope you guys enjoy this conversation with Annie what got you there? What got you, got you, what got you there? I'm Sean Delaney, and you're listening to What Got You There. What Got You There is a must-follow for entrepreneurs, creatives, high achievers, and change makers. Each week, I sit down with some of the world's most influential people and focus on the journey behind their success. We uncover the strategy, tactics, and routines that help them get there. Now it's your journey, so it's time to learn what's going to get you there. If you're enjoying the podcast, then you might want to check out some of the other things I'm working on behind the scenes. I put out a weekly newsletter called Momentum Monday, which is just a quick synthesis of everything I've been reading, listening to, and watching during the week. I also do a once a month deep dive called The Distillery, which is just a long form distillation on someone whose thinking has greatly impacted me. You can check out past distillations of Josh Waitzkin, Michael Jordan, Bob Iger, Bruce Lee, Nick Saban, and many more. I also have 50 plus book recaps of my favorite reads. So you can find everything I just mentioned and more at whatgotyouthere.com. After five plus years learning from hundreds of the world's most successful people, I've taken the most important practices and lessons and distilled them down into my online course called You Unleash, which is going to help you become the person you know you're capable of becoming. Now, You Unleash is going to help you break free of your old habits and excuses. It's going to eliminate your limiting beliefs and start taking action in ways that will actually get you results. Now, the course has a proven curriculum that has helped people just like you take action towards creating the life they've dreamed of. Well, now it's your turn. You Unleash, though, isn't a quick fix. It's not a magic pill. It doesn't involve empty promises or lofty goals. Instead, it's a roadmap to your true potential. So are you ready to eliminate those fears and become that fully unleashed version of yourself? If so, enroll now by clicking the link below or heading to whatgotyouthere.com. Annie, welcome back to What Got You There for a third time. How are you doing today? I'm good. Can't believe it's my third time. time I know, flies. like I, we were saying before, this is the you're the first third time guest. So obviously, this is to acknowledge just how much I've learned from you over the years, how much I appreciate your thinking. Um, but yeah, this is fun. Thanks for doing this one again. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me again. So, so one of the things that we were kind of just talking about, uh, busy morning for you, uh, a lot mm-hmm. going on. How do you slow down um, when there's a lot happening? for you to make more effective decisions or just be more in the moment at that time, even when there's a lot going on? Oh gosh, that's a really good question. So first of all, let me just say I'm bad at slowing down. Um, I did actually force myself to take a, a, I'm going to put air quotes around this sabbatical for about three months this spring. So uh, when I finished writing this book until about the end of June, which is about three months, um, in 2022, I, I took a sabbatical. Uh, what that really meant was I told my clients I was off for three weeks 
Um, but it was working on other stuff. First of all, you know, once you turn a book in, that's not the end of the book. You have to do a bunch of edits, uh, read the audio. Um, I was still doing some writing. I'm working on a dissertation, stuff like that. But it was much slower than normal for me. And I, every single day, at least once a day, I took my dog on about a three-mile hike that where halfway point is the river and he really loved it. And I have to say that was really good time for me. I didn't pull out my phone. I just walked with him. And that's now something that I'm incorporating into my daily routine. I mean, I've always done things like gone out in the backyard and played with him. We have a, you know, throw a Frisbee walks, but this was really hikes down to the river every single day. Um, and you know, I did, I do think that I was doing some good thinking and problem solving at that point. So now going forward, I've decided that I really want to do that. Um, before I did the sabbatical though, uh, you know, I think that in some ways my sort of what seems to be sort of an inability to sort of shut my mind off, um, can be helpful for decision-making because it means I'm sort of working the decision all the time. So, you know, I'm in the shower, I'm working a decision, I'm lying in bed, I'm working a decision. I actually watch some really terrible reality TV for the reason that it gives me time to think. I know that sounds really weird, but I don't need to follow a plot. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Uh, so it's just kind of like sort of noise in the background that allows me to take time to think. And the the other thing is I actually really take advantage of like... Um, other people around me who I think are really smart. And so I'll set time, time aside to say, hey, listen, I just want to ask you about something. And I'll sort of work the decision that way. And I think that that comes from my poker playing days, where that's mainly how I worked through a lot of the decision problems that I faced in poker, was by describing the dilemma or describing the situation that I was in and trying to get them to give me feedback. Um, and I'm a prodigious user of that particular strategy. I was having a conversation similar to this yesterday uh, with an investment manager, and he was talking about like not being able to shut his brain off. And obviously, like two sides of the same coin, right? Like that's a, a big strength, but a major weakness. Even the people within the organization, they're like, "Hey, can, can we calm this down at times?" Um, so I'm just wondering, like, what else have you have you seen with all the people you've worked with that have gotten better at that over time, or is this something you know what embrace this? So I think it depends on whether you're imposing it on other people or not. So I think it's fine for your brain to go all the time, right? I really do. I mean, I think you should try to find time for uh, alone time. But trust me, when I was walking my dog, I was working through stuff, yeah. yep. right? Like that wasn't stopping. It's just that I didn't have my phone. I didn't. I had fewer distractions. It was actually time where I could concentrate more, where I could make my brain go more focused. And But it was still quiet time at the same time. What I try to impress on a lot of the CEOs that I work with is – you shouldn't allow that kind of energy, that um, urgency mm. to bleed out into your meetings, right? So what's happening when I'm walking with my dog is I'm sort of working the decision in a really focused way that I'm not feeling the need in that second to solve it. I'm just working through it. But what I find is that in organizations, people will start talking. There'll be some problem that's brought up in a meeting and immediately people want to start talking about it and people want start wanting to solve for it. And that's where I think that you need to step in and say, let's slow this down. So I would say that a good portion of the work that I do with the, with the groups that I consult with is getting them to slow their decision-making down. 
that doesn't mean that I'm getting them to have time where their brain isn't working. I'm just trying to get them to stop talking to each other so much, which I know sounds weird for group decision-making, but great group decision-making comes out of not talking to each other so much. So like, I'll give you an example. Like, um, there's a SaaS company that I work with and they had an outage and there was an issue with one particularly large client and the communication from sort of customer success across the organization to engineering had not been great. So it caused a problem with the client because obviously, you know, the client just wants to know what's going on. And when the organization itself isn't communicating well within the organization, then when customer success is communicating to the customer, it's obviously not going to be a particularly great conversation because they're not informed. So this was like in a regular weekly meeting that this was brought up and immediately everybody started trying to solve it. Not only did everybody try to solve it, but each department said, it's not my problem, right? Well, of course that happened. So that's a place where you just want to slow down, stop talking about it, right? So I actually stepped in there and I said, stop talking about it. This is a much bigger problem that has to do with what are the protocols when this happens and let's slow this decision making process down. So I just made, made them shut up basically. Um, and then the, the conversation went in a very different way, which was there was a prompt set out to each of the individuals that were sort of like would have decision-making power within this particular chain. What do you, you know, what do you think were is a weakness in the way that we communicate with each other? Do you have any ideas for strategies that would make it better? So, and so, you know, the things that you would have been talking about on mass, but now you're asking people individually and asynchronously where they're not being yelled at by anybody, where people aren't entrenching, where they actually have time. You give them time. You give them a couple of days to give their answer. And so they can mull it over. They can walk their dog and think about the problem. Then they get to write their opinions down. And then you're looking across the organization. And now you've actually got everybody's sort of true opinions of, you know, where's the problem? What's the bottleneck? What would be the ways to solve for it? So you've sort of brainstormed this and explored the issue without everybody yelling at each other, giving people a couple of days to actually mull it over as opposed to solve for it on the spot. And I think that that type of process actually sort of plays into give people alone time and also time in a group to then discuss what you discover. I hope that makes sense. No, no, no. That makes perfect sense. The, the way I think about this is slow down to speed up, right? In the act, right. we're actually slowing down, but long-term, it actually speeds up our process overall and our effective ability to make great decisions. Annie, you mentioned something a second ago. It's like you you sit down or try to with people who are really intelligent. As a total nerd here, uh, Josh Wolf. this was a little over a year ago, posted a photo oh, okay. of you. I, I know Josh. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It was you, Josh Wolf, uh, Daniel Kahneman, and Michael Mobison. And mm-hmm. I, I would just love to know what it would be like to be a fly in the wall, on the wall during that conversation or one of your Well, you lunches. actually can know because because uh, Josh got that comment so often that the last time that we got together for lunch, we did it in, at Lux uh, and we recorded it. And there's a podcast. You can go find it. I, I, I'm just wondering when the, when the microphones aren't rolling, what else is, is going on or being said or even just what what's the air like there? You know, I, it was a slightly more formal conversation because we knew the microphones were on. Mm-hmm. Also, poor, poor, poor Michael had COVID. And so he had to sort of zoom in, but um, 
it was a little bit more formal of a conversation, but honestly, it wasn't really that different from the conversations that we would normally have. I mean, there might've been a little bit more politics when the, when the, <laughs> when the microphones aren't rolling, I think we all sort of like took some politics out of the discussion, but, um, but other than that, I mean, honestly, we're kind of all nerdy. We're getting together to talk behavioral science, really. And that's what we talked about. And I don't think that that conversation was actually all that different than the conversations that we normally have. It makes me think of have you the, seen- the interesting thing, though, was it's always lunch. And so we had all brought food. But but at the end, all of us still had the food in front of us because yeah. I think we were conscious about eating with the <laughs> microphones on. So the only thing is we didn't actually eat. But so normally we're eating when we do this. One of the things that I always try to think about, um, especially with this, like tapping into other people's knowledge, is I want to positively like spring load the starting conditions, right? And everything that you've learned now, say you were starting out again, what would the early days look like for Annie Duke? Just becoming a better decision maker. What If you were starting out today, what are your first six to 12 months like? What are you doing? Do you mean starting out as an academic or as a poker player? Let's just say career-wise in general, just because I think, um, I think you're- Yeah, the, career, gotcha. Yeah. yeah, so I would have actually, I, there's a lot of things that I would have done differently. So uh, I would have I would have found myself more mentors. Hmm. And I think that this is something that actually, you know, my dad is, my dad is super awesome, but I don't think that he thinks in this space that much because he was actually a teacher at a private school. And so he actually had quite a few connections. And I think that he could have connected with me with some great mentors. And I, it's not that he wasn't doing it like out of malice. It just didn't occur to him. Um, and so that's that's like a regret that I have because he's really like the epitome of like absent-minded professor like English teacher, like, I don't think he was thinking like, oh, I know all of these people I could connect my daughter to who could maybe help her. The the other thing is that I think that that idea of connecting young people with mentors in that way, it wasn't something that was sort of the zeitgeist at yeah. the time. Like now I think that's a much more normal thing to do, but I would have liked to have done that. And a few, there's a few reasons why I would have really liked to have done that. I don't think that I actually explored the space well when I went to college. So I don't think I really understood, like, what are the different types of things that you could do? Hmm. Like, the, I thought about business as like a monolith. Like, I didn't know there were many, many ways yeah. to be a business person. I didn't really know about finance, like the different things that you could do within finance, for example. Um, so I didn't, I didn't get that whole sort of side of the world. And I didn't have anybody who was really there to help me explore it. I, and I think the other thing is that I didn't really have someone sit me down and say, you should be pursuing something mathematical. And I that that is a great sadness for me. I obviously ended up doing something very mathematical, but it, it was in a super circuitous way. So, um, you know, I think that, so for me, what, so when I was in high school, I, I, I did very advanced math. I just, it was just something I, I was, you know, sort of born relatively talented at, you know, thank you. I was very happy <laughs> to have that talent. Uh, but, you know, I, my father was an English teacher and I really loved my dad. And um, he really had a love of that side of the world. And I think that I kind of wanted to emulate that. And I didn't have a mentor sit down and say, something that I said to my own youngest daughter, I need to tell you that 
you may want to do something mathematical or not, but understand that you're a woman. So that's unusual that you like math. It's unusual that you have a talent for it. And that's going to, first of all, if you enjoy it, you should do it anyway, but it's also going to open a lot of doors for you. And I don't think that I had anybody really like, not only did nobody sort of say that explicitly to me, but I felt like people were sort of pushing me away from that part of the world. And I ended up double majoring in English and psychology in college. So, you know, I also didn't know that there were different ways that you could sort of, you know, I didn't know how you could apply mathematics. Right. So I didn't want to go and be like a mathematician in terms of being a professor, but I didn't know, like, for example, that you could go into finance. Right. So that that just wasn't something that I understood. So I, I that is something that I would have really changed. And I think that in terms of all decision making, that would be the key thing is explore your options, gather as much information as you possibly can so that you can actually think about those different options. Think about it in terms of what your values are. Think about what the possible outcomes of those things are and try to sort of find what the best path is among those. And I just don't, I I wasn't thinking in that way. And I wasn't, I don't think I had people helping me think in that way. So that's what I would change for myself. And honestly, for anybody who's trying to make a decision. Yeah. A couple of the things I think great mentors do is they remove that wall for us, right? Like they open our mind up to the possibilities, like you mentioned there. Another thing I found that I feel like great mentors do is great mentors can obviously share knowledge, but there's a difference between like so many of us know the right thing, but we're, we don't take the correct action on it or we, we, we intuitively know it, but we can't act. And I'm just wondering, what have you seen to take that knowledge, ingrain it in our brain, but then actually take action on it? What allows that to happen? Oh, well. So, you know, here's, here's kind of the thing about that. I mean, I I talk about this in, in my new book is that particular thing is really hard. So it depends a little bit on whether you're, I'm going to use the phrase in it. So this is a a phrase that uh, Daniel Kahneman uses, Nobel laureate. So I I like to use things that Nobel laureates use. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's a good strategy in life. Um, but he talks about the worst time to make a decision is when you're in it. So what does he mean by that? Well, like when you're actually facing the decision down, right? When it's like you have to make that choice right then immediately. And I think that's where you get to what you say. Like, you know, you know what the right thing to do is, but when it actually comes time to do it, you don't do it. Okay. So there's a variety of ways. Like I can give you some examples, for example, from finance where you can see that occurring. So um, you know, someone might know, for example, about loss aversion. So loss aversion, simply put, it's part of prospect theory, back to Kahneman and Tversky, um, is that we don't like to choose options that carry the possibility of a loss. And we'll choose an option that might have a lower expected value. In other words, that might, in the long run, uh, make you make less progress toward your goal if it carries less of a chance of of loss. Okay, so we don't like that idea that maybe we could lose on something. Um, Now, people kind of know like, okay, that's a mistake because it causes you to not advance toward your goals enough, right? It, It makes it so that you're, it creates risk aversion. It makes it hard to start things because we're so afraid that if we went, after we start it, we might lose. Right. And so it makes it, it's really this, this problem really slows us down in life because we won't start stuff. 
So I can know that in theory, right? But then when I'm having to make a decision to do something like maybe take a new job and I'm thinking, oh, but I might be unhappy in that new job, it will stop me from doing it. Okay. Cause I'm in the decision. So, um, so that's an example. Another example would be like, you know, people set stop loss orders and they cancel them all the time. Right. And you kind of, because when you're in it and you're like, oh gosh, but I'm going to have to realize that loss, which is like incredibly painful to us. We'll just cancel the stop loss up. So that's actually a companion to loss aversion. So loss aversion stops you from getting started because like, I don't want to go and take this new job because I'm afraid that it might turn out poorly. Um, even if like to someone looking from the outside in, it's totally the right choice. Then a companion to loss aversion is called sure loss aversion. So when you're already losing at something, like you're holding a stock and you're losing, we don't like to realize the loss because that's when it becomes a sure loss. Before that, when you're still holding the stock, it's like a possible loss. (laughs) It's a loss on paper. It's a loss on the books. But you don't actually want to convert that into a realized loss. And so that stops us from selling. So we can take those two companion problems and we can see that what happens is, in theory, we know that that's an issue. But in practice, when we're right up on it, we won't do it. So how can you actually make it so that you'll do it? Um, So there's basically two broad strategies that will help you do it. Uh, In combination, they're particularly powerful, but they can also be great individually. The first is to set what I call kill criteria. Um, You know, and it could be kill or go criteria, but kill criteria. The reason why I focus on the kill side is because, as I just told you, a lot of times we have trouble stopping things, right, when we should. We just don't quit enough. Um, So kill criteria are thinking in advance about what are the conditions under which I might stop doing this. So if you think about, like, for example, the job situation, what are the conditions under which I would leave a job for another one? What would have to be happening in my job? What would the feedback have to be? What type of boss would I be dealing with? Um, uh, would I, you know, am I getting promoted? Uh, when do I think that I need to get promoted by for me to feel like this is worth it for me to stay in this particular position? You can think about things like that. Obviously, a stop loss order in itself is a kill criteria. If I lose, you know, if the stock goes to X, I'm going to stop. Um, we had stop losses in poker. Uh I've used this in sales before, right? I've worked with a group of sellers where I've said, uh, imagine you were pursuing a lead for an RFP through an RFP or RFI. It's it's six months later, you you lost the deal. Looking back, you realize there were early signals. You weren't going to win it. What were they? So uh, people come up with different answers there. Some answers are like um, the first meeting, they only wanted to talk about price. So we'll use that as an example. That's a very negative signal. It means they're probably about to sign a contract with someone else and they're trying to use you as the stocking horse, right? So we set those out in advance. um, And then uh, basically you make a pre-commitment to follow that. So stop loss orders are exactly this type of thing. And you might say, but Annie, you just said that people cancel stop loss orders all the time. That is true, but they don't sometimes. And that sometimes that they don't means that they're doing the right thing more often than they otherwise would. Okay. So when we think about those kill criteria, it's a pre-commitment to take an action when you see a particular signal in the world and it can work both ways. So I've worked with like portfolio managers where we talk about, um, 
They have a particular thesis. The thesis obviously is saying that the fundamentals are going to be, you know, have at certain values, right? That that's what they're imagining is going to occur in the world. That's why they think that this is a good trade. And what they kind of think intuitively is that, well, given that my thesis requires that, let's say, interest rates are sitting within a certain band, then if interest rates move outside that band, I'll obviously react to that and do something with the trade. But as Daniel Kahneman tells us, knowing that that's what we're supposed to do, because that's what our thesis is, is very different than actually doing it. And what you see with PMs is that when that does happen, they'll, you know, well, now it's really cheap or now, you know, they'll come up with some way to keep the position on. So what we do is say, okay, you're saying that the interest rates are supposed to be within that band, set the upper and lower bound, and then commit to an action. So in some cases, you might press the position if it goes, say, above the upper bound, for example, you might take the position off if it goes below the lower bound. And then it also tells you to stop panicking if it's w- within that band. And obviously you have more complex, it's, it's across more fundamentals for most trades that you're making. So I'm simplifying it down to one. Um, another example of this would be, uh, this one actually came from Kevin Zolman, which I thought was so good, was if you get a PhD in uh, the humanities like English and your goal is to become a tenure track professor, so this is like really good for like figuring out for a career path, right? Um, the thing about PhDs in humanities is that tenure tenure track positions are quite rare. They're they're hard to find. There there aren't a lot of them. Um, the other problem with it is that there's all sorts of kind of false progress that you can make along the way because while there are very few tenure track positions, which is your goal. There are lots and lots and lots of postdoc positions and adjunct professor positions. So you can get those over and over and over again and feel like you're making progress in your career. But remember, your goal is to be a tenure track professor, to get a position and get tenure. So, you know, what you would do in that situation is go look and say, what is the average time it takes someone from the day they get their PhD, right? to securing a tenure track position in my field. So go find out what that average time is, then decide what your risk tolerance is. Maybe you want to do it faster. Maybe you want to do it slower. Uh, But let's say it's four years. And so you say, uh, okay, four years is the average time to get a tenure track position. And then you say, so if I have not secured one in four years, doesn't matter how many postdocs or adjuncts or whatever I'm getting offered. If I haven't secured a tenure track position in four years, I'm going to leave academics. And you would do that because in this case in particular, if you leave academics, you can't come back when it happens to be in the humanities. It's really hard. It's kind of a one-way door. So you can see how that helps you actually act. Whereas if you didn't actually set that out in advance, you'd go, well, yeah, I didn't get one yet, but I've had so many adjuncts and, you know, so many postdocs and now I'm getting offered another adjunct position at the university. And if I do that, then maybe when a tenure track position opens up, then I'll get preferred treatment, right? These are the things that we do, even though we know that we're supposed to actually take an action. So these types of kill criteria are really powerful. That's like strategy number one. Strategy number two I've hinted at, which is get some outside help. (laughs) So, uh, you know, this is also this, this, uh, I, I was sort of thinking about in this space and then I asked Daniel Kahneman about it and I think he said it 
really well. He said, find someone who loves you, but doesn't care about hurt feelings in the moment. <laughs> Usually a good person to consult. <laughs> right. And so, so what he meant by that was that a lot of times what happens is that uh, you're talking to people and they think that you want that to them to tell you what you want to hear. Right. So that's what he means by hurt feelings in the moment. Right. And when you ask them about it, they'll say, well, I didn't want to hurt your feelings. Okay. So he said, you got to find someone who loves you, right? They have to have your best interest at heart, but they also, you have to give them permission and they have to be willing to do it, that they might tell you something that hurts right then. Look, Sean, you're never going to get a tenure track position. You've been at this for 10 years. You've had like five different postdocs and like four different adjuncts. And there's been tenure track positions that have opened up at the universities that you're adjuncting out at, and you have not been offered any of those. Like it's time to stop. Now, in order to have that conversation, you have to give me permission to have that conversation. But notice that now I can help you see what you're trying to rationalize away. And it doesn't matter that you would be able to see that in somebody else. I mean, this is the big problem with decision-making is you could see that that person should, you know, a different, you know, you're advising another Sean, you would know that they shouldn't be continuing, that they're not going to get that tenure track position. But when you're the one who's in it, it's really hard because you just say, no, but I know, and this one's really good. And I know there's going to be a position opening the next year, and this will be my foot in the door. And this time is going to be, you know, or people who are in startups, like, I know we can turn it around if we just tweak, tweak the project product, or we have a different advertising strategy, or, you know, we're going to find our product market fit. You know, it's like, all right, maybe, but why don't we do this? We'll set out some kill criteria and then I'm going to coach you when we butt up against those kill criteria. And I think that then you can actually really start to act much more rationally, but it takes intention and it takes effort. It's it's funny you mentioned the, the startup conundrum there, and I, I was actually talking with a, a CEO yesterday who was literally talking through this problem. Like, hey, do, do we call this quit? Even though there's there's signs of serious success here, if not, and I guess where I wrestle with this is like the survivorship bias, right? Like you read Phil Knight's biography, and he's like down to his death, or like James Dyson, and they just keep going. And so it's just like there are certain people who quit and then find another way to succeed, and then people who keep going. Like, how do you just wrestle through that? I guess. So a couple of things. I mean, look, here's the deal. In order to have succeeded at something, you have to have stuck to it. It's just true. But that doesn't mean that if you stick to something, you're going to succeed. Yeah. So let's just first understand that, that that's just a fallacy. And I think that that's what we think. You know, when you hear things like winners never quit and quitters never win, it's talk from people who succeeded. Yeah. You've got, you've got a so great line you, in your new book, contrary to popular belief, winners quit a lot. That's how they win. Right. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it's true. So, you know, the key is to find the thing that's worth sticking to. And this is the issue that I have is that, you know, I think that as we think about these things, grit and the decision about whether to stick to something grit and the decision about whether to walk away, quit are seen as opposing forces, right? Where grit is a virtue and quit is a vice. Hmm. Quit is a, quitting is a character flaw. It means you're weak willed. That's what people think. Persevering is like, you know, courageous and, you know, strong and heroic. And it's, you know, it develops character and all those things. Well, okay, those things are all true. But what we need to realize is that grit and quit are literally the identical decision. If you choose to stick to something, you're choosing not to quit it. 
you choose to quit something, you're choosing to stick to not to stick to it. So there's no, we have to think about those as the same thing, as opposed to thinking about grit as a virtue and quit as a vice, because it all depends on the context. Because I can show you lots of situations in which grit is stupidity, right? So like, here's one, you're climbing up Everest and a snowstorm comes in on summit day. Are you supposed to keep going? Are you supposed to turn around? Obviously, you're supposed to turn around. Like, that's super clear, right? If somebody were to continue on under those conditions, you would think they were an idiot. Okay, so so we know that, right? We watch people all the time in sports who are continuing to go after their prime. And we are very critical of those people for not quitting. Muhammad Ali is, like, such a great example of this, right? Like, so... He's like the grittiest person ever, the greatest of all time, you know, heavyweight boxing champion. And he becomes a conscientious conscientious objector to the war, has to take like four years off before he gets another title fight. By this time, he's in his 30s. He's fighting George Foreman, who's never lost, knocks people out, you know, in half a round and he beats him. Okay, so in the rumble in the jungle. So that's a great example of grit. But what happens after that is that he keeps going and he keeps fighting and he's getting reports from doctors that his kidneys are failing, that he can't take another punch to the body, that he's going to be cognitively impaired and he doesn't quit. He boxes for like another seven years after that. And obviously he ends up with Parkinson's syndrome. He fought Larry Holmes in a fight that was so awful that Larry Holmes, who won the fight, cried after the fight at the beating that he gave Ali. Now we can look at that and see very clearly he should have quit. So we know that like sometimes it's good to stick and sometimes it's good to quit. And we shouldn't think about these as opposing forces. So let's start with that. Like one's not a negative or a positive. It depends on the context yeah. that you're sitting in. And just because you see someone like Dyson who just kept going and going and going does not mean that's the right decision for you. Yeah. So let's be super, super, super clear about that. So this is what we want to avoid. Grit, the power of grit, is that it gets you to stick to the hard things that are worthwhile. And we want to do that, right? Because we don't want to quit things just because they're hard. Not if they're worthwhile, we still want to stick to them. The the problem with grit, though, is that it gets you to stick to hard things that are not worthwhile. So our job is to be able to tell the difference between the two. So this is a place where I think that Ron Conway, who founded um, SB Angel, um, sets such a good example for how people in uh, startups, in venture, can sort of think through this problem. So what he describes, he actually is incredibly proud of the number of founders that he has coached to shut it down. Mm-hmm. Now, on a, he's an angel investor, right? And I think that people think about VCs as really having this ethos of they want the founders to feel like quitting is not an option, right? Because they've got this big portfolio of companies and they just need those few that are out at the tails to hit. And so they want to have as many shots on goal as possible. So I think people perceive that that VCs are like, don't ever shut it down. But I think Ron Conway shows you that that's not how they think about it. How they think about it is like, let's get the things that are worthwhile and really get them on the on-ramp. And let's help the founders see what we see when it comes to the things that aren't working out. So he's like your founder. 
He'll sit down with a founder who is struggling. Now, let me be clear that when he does this, he usually can see that this thing is not working. Yeah. Okay. So he sits down and he says, you know, things seem to be going poorly. You know, what do you think about maybe shutting it down or uh, thinking about a, a completely different product, you know, so on and so forth, like shut the venture down completely. Maybe you should start thinking about a different strategy or a different product. Um, and when it comes to the, the the problem of shutting something down, he almost always gets the same answer from the founder, which is what you heard. But no, but we have had some success. I know that we can make it work. If we just do X, Y, or Z, I can get us on the right path. We're on the cusp. That's one. We're on the cusp. Maybe we can get it to work. So he actually takes a very interesting tactic, which is, is he actually doesn't disagree with them in any way. So he says, oh, okay, I agree with you. You can turn this around. So that's unusual in and of itself, right? But I think it's a very good strategy. And the reason why it's a really good strategy is that problem of it's really hard to make a decision when you're in it. So if he then tries to argue with them, I don't think it's going to work very well because he they're in the decision about whether to actually continue on or shut it down. And that's when people are going to be at their least rational. So instead, he just agrees with them. He says, okay, I agree with you. If you do X, Y, and Z, you can turn it around. All right, so can we agree right now what that looks like. So how long are we talking about? How long is it going to take you to actually be able to get to confidence that this is going to work? So let's say maybe it's three months. What are we going to see in the three months? What benchmarks are you going to hit? So that might be new ARR that you've generated. Um, you know, it could be uh, customer acquisition, like, you know, month over month customer acquisition or week over week customer acquisition could be whatever the metric is, right? It could be delivering a new product. And then I don't care. The founder is going to know that better than, you know, I would. So uh, he sits down with the founder and says, okay, I think you can turn it around in the next three months. What, what are we going to see? Tell me what the benchmarks are that are that we're going to hit. Notice he's setting kill criteria, yeah, yep. right? And then he says, okay, so that's great. So can we now agree that we're going to revisit this in three months? And if you're not hitting these hitting these numbers, um, or if you haven't delivered this product or, you know, whatever, um, that then we're going to have a discussion about shutting this thing down. No, that's, that's very clear. One of the people that I really admire, their thinking around quitting moving forward was Stuart Butterfield. And, and I would love if you could share that example and just talk through that because I thought like like the Everest example, it's like, yeah, like I don't, I don't want to die here. So what Butterfield does is just masterful to me. Yeah. So, okay. So, so let me just say this. So, you know, notice that in this particular case, Ron Conway is looking from the outside in and he can see that the company is sort of a dead man walking. Mm -hmm. He's just helping the founder get to that decision themselves. Yeah. It's a better way to have it happen. But notice that he's sacrificing three months in order to be able to do that. And the reason that he's doing that is because he knows that if he doesn't do that, it might be another year. So that's a really big savings in time. So when we're talking about quitting decisions, what we're trying to do is get to the decision more quickly than we otherwise would. Because that's going to save us time. Like Astro Teller from, from Axe at Google, the innovation hub says, if if I can get to the decision having spent $2 million instead of $9 million, that's a win. Hmm. 
Because from his perspective, yeah. he didn't, it's not that he wasted $2 million on something. He saved $7 million. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So this is the way that we want to think about it. So now you have someone like Stuart Butterfield. The thing about Stuart Butterfield is all on his own, he gets to this decision really fast. And that's because what's unusual about him, and I'm going to tell the story, is that usually when we're willing to quit, we have to already have be on the, the, the top of Everest with the snowstorm coming. In other words, there has to sort of be no choice left for us to be able to do it. So that's what Ron Conway is trying to get the founder to, gotcha. to stop thinking, oh, I can just turn it around, but to get to the, them to see that there's really no choice. Like you haven't hit your benchmarks. Yeah. And this is, and I think it's because we think about it so negatively. When we quit, that's when we go from, you know, sort of maybe failing on the books to having failed. And that's so awful for us that we want there to be no choice but to do it. Hmm. Because then, like, from our own perspective, it's okay that we did it. And from the, you know, from how other people, we might think other people will view us, they're going to go, well, what could you do? You didn't have a choice. So now we come to Stuart Butterfield. So Stuart Butterfield, it, you know, we start the story. Stuart Butterfield is on his second try at developing an online cooperative world building game. So he had tried this before uh, at during the dot-com crash. And there just wasn't an appetite in venture for it at the time because venture had completely contracted. And so he had actually shut that company down because he literally couldn't raise money for it. He did end up uh, taking a feature of the game, which was a photo sharing feature of the game, which uh, and turned it into Flickr, uh, which, um, you know, we all know Flickr. So he had had a, a modest success from that. So now we flash forward um, to, uh, I think it's about 2008, and he creates a company called Glitch. He founds a company called Glitch with uh, some of his people, you know, co-founders from the Flickr days. Um, And he creates a game called Game Never Ending. And, you know, the internet is faster, more people are using it, the venture appetite is much better. It's all good. So... um, so I guess it was a little after 2008, but it's all good. So he's got lots of funding. Um, he's got Andreessen Horowitz and Excel uh, are backing him. He has $6 million in the bank at this point in the story. Um, the critics love the game. They call it Dr. Seuss meets Monty Python. Like they love the game, the look and feel. It's a big darling of the critics. Um, and he actually has 5,000 diehard users of the game. So the diehard users are described as people who play the game 20 hours or more a week. Um, And obviously they're going to be the income generators for the game. Um, So uh, that all sounds like super rosy, $6 million in the bank, 5,000 people using the game, you know, more than 20 hours a week. Uh, You know, critics love it. Obviously the investors love it, but they all kind of see a problem. And the problem is that, uh, to acquire those 5,000 users, basically for every one user that uses the game 20 hours a week, you've got to get like somewhere between 95 and 99 people to come look at the game because uh, the majority of the users, 95 to 99% of them come and play the game for set, like seven minutes and never come back. Hmm. Okay. So you can see how this is a little bit of a problem, right? Because obviously the people who come play it for seven minutes aren't generating any income for you. So what they decide to do is to do a big marketing push. So the way they had been acquiring users up until this point was like through PR and word of mouth. So they decide they're now going to do paid advertising um, and they start to do that and they put a bunch of money behind it and it works like a charm. 
So I think growth of new users during this time period is like six or seven percent week over week. Um, and this is in the fall of uh, 2012. So um, so now it gets to be November and it's the weekend of the 11th and 12th and they have the biggest week of customer acquisition ever. Okay, so that sounds pretty good. Um, Stuart Butterfield goes to sleep that Sunday night having this amazing situation happen where they've acquired all these users. And he wakes up the next morning after a very restless night and he sends an email to his co-founders and his investors saying, I woke up this morning with a dead certainty that Glitch was dead, that it was over. So that's confusing because yeah. I just told you all the great, yeah, they have $6 million in the bank. Who does that? They're, you know, they've just acquired tons and tons of customers. Um, and the reason that he said that is because he didn't need to like fall into the crevasse to figure out that he needed to quit. He didn't need to run out of capital like he did the first time in order to figure out that he should quit, which is, by the way, what most, most founders do. They drive it all the way until there's no money left, right? Because then people say, well, what could you do? You did everything you could, which feels much better to us, right? So he didn't need to do that because he could look into the future to see what it was going to look like, to see that he was already he it was already dead, even if it didn't look like it was dead today. And what he saw when he took that peek into the future was that if that's a big capital IF, if they continued to acquire users at the rate that they were acquiring them that weekend, that it would still be 31 weeks until that that uh, game was breaking even. Hmm. And that it was an absurd assumption to think they could keep acquiring users at that rate yeah. because Obviously, at some point, you saturate the core gaming audience. Like, you've got everybody already, and now you're advertising outside of the core gaming audience, or you're advertising to the same people who've already come and tried the game and left. So he just said the math didn't work. That was the thing. He knew that the math didn't work. So he shut it down. I mean, he just woke up that morning, and he shut it down. And, I, you know, I asked him if his co-founders and the investors got on board because they, they were really shocked by the decision. They they didn't see that coming. And so I said, well, did did you when you explained it to them like that, did they get on board? And he said, Well, I don't, I don't actually really know. I mean, I think that they just sort of thought like if I didn't want to do it and I was the founder, you know, that there was no reason to continue. So so he shut he shut it down. Now I think a lot of people think, oh, that's so sad, like he failed twice. But he didn't fail because he returned six million in capital to the investors when he determined that the next dollar he was going to put into the game wasn't worth it. Hmm. He let his employees, he actually helped his employees get jobs when he realized that the equity that they were working for, because remember they're working for very little cash and mostly equity. Yeah. These are very smart people that he has working for him, them, him. When he figures out that their equity wasn't worth it, he let them go. Think about what an amazing act that is. Right. So a lot of times when founders are reluctant to walk away, they say, but I owe it to my employees to keep trying. Hmm. But if your employees are working for equity that you have figured out isn't worthwhile, you actually owe it to them to let them go. And that's the way that Stuart Butterfield figured it out. And what was really interesting, again, was like when I talked to him, he said, you know, the thing that really bothered me about it was that I actually knew I should have shut it, shut it down six weeks earlier. 
but I couldn't bring myself to do it because I was so worried that the, the, that my co-founders and my investors were going to think that I was just being, um, you know, capricious, impulsive, and he didn't want to be seen as being impulsive. So even for him who did this much earlier than most people would have, he still thought that he did it too late because he was worried about the way that people would view that decision because people view quitting so negatively, even though he was very clear about the math and not wanting to stick, keep his employees who he felt were brilliant people in an endeavor that wasn't going to be venture scale. So it wasn't really worth their time. Right. Okay. So that I consider a total success story. Now there's a different reason that people think this is a success story. The, and there's a reason why I held it off until now. And the, the reason that people think that this is actually a success story is because uh, Glitch had an internal communications tool that they used in order to, you know, talk internally in the company. So teams could talk across each other, you know, to each other. Uh, they, you know, you could work internally on, uh, on a team, c- kind of combine like the best things about email and uh, instant messaging and texting. Um, so it was a, a tool that they really loved. And actually, while they used it at Glitch, it didn't even have a name. So two days after this happens, um, Butterfield gives it a name, searchable log of all company knowledge. The acronym is Slack. And he launches Slack two days later. And so people say, oh, that's what makes it a happy ending. Because he shut Glitch down. And then that allowed him to develop this internal communications tool into Slack, which obviously we know is a $20 billion company, right? Um, uh, And his investors rolled their capital into it. And obviously some of the employees stayed and so on and so forth. But that's not what makes it a happy ending. Like that's just a coda to something that was already a happy ending on its own. And it's because he was so good at saying, I don't need to get to the edge of the abyss to know that I need to quit because I can see the ed- edge of the abyss ahead of me. And I'm going to quit before I put myself in that kind of danger. No, thank you for sharing that story. I, I love that because it gives great thinking um, in-, in story format. So thank-, thank you for sharing that. That's awesome to see how that played out um, and highlighting that. W- one of the things I-, I love doing is I looking love looking to disciplines outside the specific discipline I'm looking in. So say for investing, where are we getting different ideas and things like that? Um, and one of the things that you do a great job telling is the wandering ants. And I would love for you to ex- explain. Oh, sure. Yeah, wandering ants. I think this is fascinating around uh, exploration and exploitation. Yeah. So actually it's funny because, you know, Stuart Butterfield actually ties into this as it turns out. Um, and I'll explain why in a second. So we can take a through line of Stuart Butterfly, Butterfield, go. rather. Uh, we can take a through line of Stuart Butterfield into the ants. So, you know, this sound like the ants go marching one by one, hurrah, hurrah. Yeah. Um, right. So we all kind of know that song and we've all seen cartoons of ants and, you know, we've all actually seen ants and we see them walking in a line, in a straight line. So that's like kind of how we think about ants, like what marching in a, in a single line. Um, and for the most part, ants actually do that for the most part. So when you look at a colony of ants, uh, there's some percentage of the ants are forager ants and the forager ants are going out and getting supplies for the colony food usually. Um, and so they go into a, a, a territory and they're they're looking for food. And then if an ant finds food, as the forager ant brings it back to the colony, it lays down a pheromone trail. 
And a pheromone trail is just a chemical scent that the other ants can pick up. Now, obviously, when only one ant lays down that trail, it's pretty faint. So another another ant might pick up the trail, follow it along now. And if they find food there as well, they'll then carry food back and lay down a pheromone trail of their own. Um, and you can see that the pheromone trail is now going to get reinforced. Um, so the better the food source, the more ants are going to find food there, the stronger the pheromone trail. And that's going to cause, cause the ants to go in lockstep along this line. That's why the ants go marching one by one. Hurrah, hurrah. Okay, but when you look more closely, what you see is, yes, there's all these ants going in a single line, but there's always like 10% of the ants that are just like wandering around aimlessly. And you're like, what's the deal with those ants? Are they just lazy? Like maybe they're ant anarchists or something or malingerers. Uh, they're slackers for sure. Um, and you're like, what's the deal with these like lazy ants that aren't helping bring food back? And it turns out that for these forager ants, there's actually a big deal with them, which is that they are continuing to explore for food. Now, why would they be doing that? Well, because the world is an uncertain place and maybe something happens to the food source, right? Like maybe you find a juicy watermelon on someone's back porch, but then some human comes and cleans the watermelon up. And then there's no food there anymore. So you wouldn't want all the ants to go on a single line to only one food source, because what happens if that food source goes away? Not only that, but maybe when you explore your backup food sources, right? So that's what they're really doing if they're trying to get backup plans. Maybe you find a food source that's so great that it's actually better than the, the plan A. It's better than the original food source. And you should want to switch to that. Okay. So this is kind of like, we, we've sort of been on this theme a little bit, which is, um, you know, the issue is you have to find the right things to stick to, right? That's the thing about grit, right? It gets you to stick to hard things that are worthwhile. Yay. We want to be gritty at those things. Uh, but it also gets you to stick to things that are not worthwhile. And in, if we don't know what the other options are that available are available to us, how can we possibly really judge whether the thing we're doing is worthwhile? And part of what makes it hard to switch is that unknown, right? Like, but what else is out there? So notice that the ants are really solving for this problem. They're saying, well, we're going to go look for what's out there. We're going to go find it. And sometimes then we're going to not have knowledge that this thing is actually better than the thing you're already doing and you should switch. Now, that's easy enough for ants. They're a colony. There's many of them. But the fact is that human beings really should actually be more like ants. Because what happens with human beings is you start down a path, you're doing something, a career choice, let's say, you're in a job, and then um, you become myopic. And you don't see what else is around you anymore. So you don't even see what the other opportunities that might be available to you. You don't do a lot of reevaluating of goals. In fact, we just sort of think about, you know, you sort of run headlong into the goal. And we think that anything short of the goal is a failure. And so we won't walk away even when it's not working out very well. And notice that this really slows our progress down because now we're going to a food source over and over again that might not be particularly good because there's other food sources available, but we never went exploring for them. So let's now roll this back to Stuart Butterfield. So Stuart Butterfield is a really good example of the myopia problem. So he had a... He's such so great uh, as an example in terms of being able to see ahead 
in order to, to quit way before other people see it. That's amazing. But here's the deal. Slack was under his nose all the time, the whole time. It took quitting glitch for him to be able to see it. And that's because no matter whether you're Stuart Butterfield or someone who's, you know, less superhuman, we're all myopic when it comes to our goals or the project that we're working on or the job that we're in or whatever. We get this myopia where we're just heading toward the goal and we can't see the other things that are around us. So for Stuart Butterfield glitch, that unicorn was there the whole time. But until he stopped going to that one food source, until he said, nope, that thing's over, that was when he was able to go and see what was already there. That's how myopic we get. So we really want to um, become more like ants and keep that exploratory line open a little bit more, at least more than we already do. Yeah, one, one of the things you highlight around goals is we tend to not acknowledge the progress um, if we fall short of the goal where it's like there's so much progress that happens in an attempt to achieve that goal. And I think you shine some some really great points on the book in that. Uh, I am interested, Andy, though, like as we're going to round this out, like why did you become fascinated with quitting? Uh, yeah, so that's a good question. Um, so I can tell you, I, I, I think that there's two reasons. Um, this came actually from another podcast, someone saying, you know, that they thought that all books were authors trying to explore things about themselves. So why quitting? And I hadn't really thought about it this way, but I'm I'm a humongous quitter, like in a, the, a positive way. Like I quit things all the time. I go and try new stuff. I that's just I don't know if it's the way I'm built or if it's because I think actually part of the reason is because I was forced to quit very early on in life. So I was five years at Penn doing a PhD, and right at the end when I was going out to interview for a bunch of tenure track positions, I got really sick. And I ended up in the hospital for a couple of days. It forced me to take a year off during that year. That's when I started playing poker. The rest is history. So I think that that muscle was built for me. Uh, there's someone named Maya Shankar who actually uh, appears in the book who also she was, she studied with Iksak Perlman and uh, was just an amazing violinist. And she ended up hurting her hand um, and she had to quit the violin. Um, I think at like 17 um, ended up going on to, to get a PhD also in, um, psychology, decided she didn't like that, ended up in the Obama work, White House doing sort of behavioral science. She's now at Google. Um, and I think she's someone who's had, who got her plans forced to change on her and then learned that lesson from that and ended up being much more exploratory. And there's actually some science from, uh, Katie Milkman and John Brashears, which shows that when people are forced to quit things, they become more exploratory naturally. So um, I think that's number one. But number two is that I always felt really bad about quitting graduate school. It was, it was something that I felt terrible about. So I think I probably wanted to explore the topic a little bit. And also because I do switch what I'm doing a lot, like I was an academic, then I was a poker player, then I was giving talks, then I became a consultant, then I became a writer. Then I went back to Penn and now I'm back in academics doing research at Penn and teaching there. And I said, well, you know, maybe people think I'm flighty or something, right? So I, I do think that that was a piece of it. Um, but I think that the main driver for me is that as a poker player, you just learn so clearly how important quit quitting is as a skill to develop. And that's because the option to fold is the most valuable option that you have in poker. So games where you're not allowed to fold um, you just kind of take the skill out of the game. 
Baccarat is an example, right? It's not like you get dealt a hand and you have the choice to let it go or not, right? I, I don't, I don't get to give up. In blackjack, they deal your two cards. If it's a 15, you're just stuck with it. But in poker, that's not true. You can let the hand go. You can fold. And it's one of the reasons why poker is such a skillful game. So there's some skill in blackjack, but not to the degree that there isn't in poker. Um, and and so a lot of the skill in blackjack has to do with knowing what's in the deck. And casinos don't like that. It is not cheating. But casinos can set their own rules and they don't like that. But poker has this big skill element, which is the ability to fold. And what I noticed was that for most amateurs, a lot of the problems with their game was the unwillingness to fold. Once they were in a hand, they they wanted to see how it turned out. That goes to like, well, I have to know that I'm going to lose in order to be able to fold because the pain of yeah. folding otherwise would be too great. Um, they tend to be overconfident about their choices. They'll say things like, I mean, so the sunk cost fallacy is taking into an account what you've already spent and deciding whether to spend, to spend more, which is a, a very big cognitive error. And they'll say things like, I had too much money in the pot to fold, hmm. which is literally the definition of the sunk cost fallacy. Yeah. So it's something that I was pretty aware of for myself in poker, right? That that um, quitting was a really important skill to develop the ability to actually exercise that option to quit. Then separately from that, um, let me just say that Angela Duckworth's book, Grit, is, is amazing and everybody should read it. But I think that the popular reading of that book is very different than what her intention was. So her intention was, you have to find what you're passionate about. And even when it's hard, you have to persevere in order to succeed at the things that are worthwhile. Now, notice that's a pretty nuanced message. And basically, I think that the way that people end up reading it is winners never quit and quitters never win. Right? That grit on its own is enough to create success. And I think that a lot of people have taken that book and amplified a bias that we already have is that we don't give ourselves permission to walk away from things because we think it's a character flaw. Now that I, I don't think that edit, in any way, if you read the book, it's not her intention. It's just, it's just the way that people read it because I think that we have a bias toward thinking that grit is good. Grit is a virtue already. And so there, you know, you'll hear people talk about, I had someone write me the other day who, I don't know if I'd written in a newsletter or they heard me in something and said, thank you so much. I was in a job with a totally toxic boss and you gave me permission to quit it. And I'm so happy. I'm now in a better job, but I thought that I had to stay and stick that job out because I needed to be gritty. Hmm. Right. So that, that's the thing is that I just wanted the other side of the argument to be heard so that there was a conversation between those two sides of the coin, because I think that grit and quit need to have that conversation with each other. There's so much science that shows that we stick to things generally too long under very particular circumstances, which is when we're in the losses, when things aren't going well. And we have the intuition that when we get the signals from the world that things are going crappy, that when the snowstorm is on the top of Everest or, or we've broken our leg on mile eight of a marathon, that we're going to stop. But we don't. Just Google broken leg marathon finished. And you will see the number of people who decide that it's a wise choice to run 20 miles on a broken leg, which obviously 
before you start the race, you would swear up and down you would never do. But you do. And we know that people die on the top of Everest when they continue to climb in really bad conditions or past the turnaround times. We know that athletes stick in their careers too long or they get an injury. They injure their shoulder at the beginning of the game and they won't quit. And it puts them out for the season instead of one just one game. This happens to us all the time. And I just felt that somebody should say there's another side of the coin. It's not you have to know the context. And if you if you don't know the context, you can't just say grit is good. And if you don't know the context, you can't ha- you can't just say quitting is good. You have to understand how do you tell the difference between when it's good and when it's not. Andy, one of the things you do is is you make the unclear very clear. It's one of the things I really appreciate. So thank you oh, for thank highlighting you. that. Um, yeah, your your books, all of them that ha- have dealt with this um, thinking in bets, um, how to decide, and then the book quit. Uh, all are very good at that. And I know the, the readers and listeners know how much I appreciate your stuff. I am wondering though, if you could do this, right? Like I love just getting to sit down with you and, and pick your brain. If you could do this with anyone dead or alive, who would you love to sit down with and just berate with questions? Do you, do you mean like from an intellectual standpoint or just like I'm interested in chatting with them? C- could you do both? I'd be, I'd be really intrigued how you differentiate the two. <laughs> Well, I don't know. I mean, you, I, I mean, you mentioned at the beginning, like, I don't, I don't want to say this in a way that's like self-aggrandizing or anything, but you mentioned in, in the beginning, like the lunches I have with like Joshua, Daniel Kahneman, Michael Mobison. Um, I, I had, you know, Richard Thaler was incredibly helpful with this book. Um, Nobel laureate, obviously. Uh, he has so much work that relates to this idea that we don't quit things enough. You know, he's the first person who identified the sunk cost fallacy as a, as a, general phenomenon, for example, has done a tremendous work on the endowment effect, which I talk about in the book. Um, and I've gotten to actually talk to those people, right? I get to, Phil Tetlock is my advisor at, like, I mean, I feel really lucky. Like I got David Epstein, I got to talk to for the book. I get to talk to Michael Mobison all the time. I mean, I feel like I'm really lucky in terms of the intellectual side of things that I actually get to talk to the people that I would really dream about getting talking, getting to talk to. And I'm so grateful for that. I'm grateful they're willing to sit down and have conversations with me. Um, uh, even someone like Don Moore, who wrote a book called uh, Perfectly Co- Confident, right? Like, he is so, like, he's the expert on over and under confidence. He is the person that I would want to talk to about that conversation, And I got to talk to him for this book. And in fact, he was an early reader and he pointed out that I had really missed talking about over optimism and then helped me work on a section in the book that was about that. Like, I feel like I am so incredibly lucky that I get to talk to these people. I mean, if I, you know, choosing someone who's no longer with us, um, you know, certainly Feynman, I'd like to have a nice conversation with, um, love him. Um, my advisor from when I was in graduate school passed away last year. So I would just want to be able to talk to her again for that reason, but a separate and apart from her being an intellectual, like my most significant intellectual mentor. Um, but I think that, that, you know, I think honestly, like the dinner that I'd like to have would be more like Oscar Wilde and Thomas Pynchon, um, you know, more like in that kind of space, um, I just, I would want to sit down with people who are just like super weird and creative, I think. 
<laughs> no, I, I love the like produce it. things where I'm like, I couldn't do that. That's really weird. Like uh, I'd like to be able to pick Jack White's brain and figure out how he plays every single is- instrument and writes a whole album in two weeks. Cause that's stuff that I just cannot relate to in any way, shape or form. Hmm. Right. Like it's not in my wheelhouse. I don't have a talent for it. I don't get it. And when I see what they produce, I'm just like, you know, who are you? So I probably, if I, I were choosing, I would go with that. And yeah, I, I've got to dive really quick on the intellectual side of things. You mentioned again and again how lucky you are. Obviously, Michael Mobison has done a ton untangling skill versus luck. I think we both can agree that you're not just lucky to have all of those people that you get to sit down with again and again. You you have a high degree of self-awareness. It is very obvious in this conversation. What do you think it is within you that they see that they'd be willing to sit down with you again and again, right? It's not just one time I'll meet Annie for dinner. You get to talk to these people again and again. So, I mean, look, I... I hate answering questions like that I for know. myself. So I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to tell you what um, Phil Tetlock says uh, and why he's, he's willing to work with me. Um, I think that Phil, who is one of the most brilliant people ever, if people haven't read, there's a couple books that they should read of his super forecasters is one. Every decision you ever make in your whole life is a forecast. Yeah. It's just a forecast of the future. That's really what, what Stuart Butterfield was doing, right. That got him to that quitting decision um, at the time that he did um, was just forecasting. uh, What does the future look like making predictions? Um, And he, along with Barb Mellers had, have done amazing work in that space, like really incredible work in that space. Um, The book, super forecasting, everybody should read. He's got another book, expert political judgment, which I think is incredible. Super, super smart guy, like so smart. But I think that what he sees for in himself is a skill gap in simplifying, but not too much, mm-hmm. right? So he tends, when you talk to him, he uh, is communicating very complex concepts. And I think that he himself feels that maybe he's communicating them too complexly. If that, I don't know if that makes sense. It he's does. not translating them well. Let's yep. put it that way. He doesn't consider himself to be a great translator. I I I love what he does, you know. But I think that he would say that that he's told me he thinks that that's a skill gap. So I think that the reason why he works with me is because he feels like I'm a good translator. So the way that I sort of think about it is, I don't necessarily have an original idea so much as. I think that I synthesize and translate really well. So when I was talking to Scott Page about this book, who um, he wrote a book called The Model Thinker, also someone who people should read that. It's He's incredible. Um, what he said to me was, in this book, you took a bunch of biases that I had not seen as related to each other. And you showed, you pulled this thread through all of them that showed the way they were related to each other. And the way the the particular two biases that he mentioned were the sunk cost fallacy and opportunity cost neglect. So the sunk cost fallacy we've already said is taking into account resources that you've already spent in a decision about whether to spend more, which you shouldn't do. Uh, You should, if you wouldn't, if you wouldn't start it today, you shouldn't keep going today just because you've already got something invested in it. Um, and opportunity cost neglect, we've also talked about, which is just not seeing the other opportunities that are available to you. And then that that costs you. If you, there's a better 
if there's a better food source out there and you're not taking advantage of it, there's a cost, you're incurring the costs that are associated with not being able to realize the gains of that, of that new food source, right? So that's opportunity cost neglect. So what he said to me was after he read my book that he he all of a sudden saw how those two things were related to each other, that the sunk cost fallacy causes you to stick to things, which naturally means that you're neglecting the oppor- other opportunities that are available to you, that those two things actually go hand in hand. Um, and so I would say that that's really my primary skill is that I'm not, I don't feel like I'm particularly original, but I think I'm pretty good at taking complex scientific concepts, translating them into more simple language without oversimplifying them without, with, without losing the nuance and then pulling threads across a lot of stuff, sort of seeing the way that things are related to each other that can put them under sort of a conceptual umbrella, if that makes sense. Um, And I feel like that's sort of what I've done in my career. That's what I've done in my book. So I'm very thankful for the people like, you know, Phil Tetlock and Barb Millers and, and Daniel Kahneman and Richard Thaler, who are doing the original scientific work and thinking about these very original ideas. And I'm grateful that they um, will talk to me to help me become a translator and synthesizer of that work. Annie, I appreciate so much the the humility, like I said, the self-awareness, your continual exploration to find out more and synthesize it and clarify it. Um, your work, like I've mentioned again and again, has been really impactful for me, so I appreciate it. Uh, the new book, Quit, The Power of Knowing When to Walk Away. This is, of course, linked up in the show notes uh, where listeners can pick it up. Anything else you want to leave them with or places they can stay connected with you? Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, So there's one thought that I want to leave people with and then places they can connect me with. So this is the, this is the thought that I want to leave people with. I think that people think that quit quitting is going to slow you down. It's going to cause you to lose ground and it's going to slow your progress towards your goals. And what I really want people, the main idea that I want people to walk away from is that quitting actually speeds your progress. It, It makes you go faster. It gets you to to the goals you're you're trying to get to more quickly. Um, so, and the reason for that is that if you get stuck, if you get mired in something that isn't worth your time, that is causing you to lose ground. If there is something that you can switch to that's going to allow you to get to where you want to go faster. If you're, you know, if you're an ant and you're taking food from a particular source and there's a better source out there, staying with the lower quality food is going to slow your progress down, right? If you are, if you have a stock uh, that's losing and you're sticking to it when there's another investment opportunity that's available that you could move your money into, not, not selling the stock, which is a form of quitting and moving it into the new stock is gonna slow you down. If you're stuck with a toxic boss because you think that you need to stick it out because that's going to show character and you don't switch to a better opportunity that slows your progress down. So quitting, quitting when the time is right will actually get you to where you want to go faster. And I really want people to take that to heart. It does not slow you down. It speeds you up. Okay. So I just, I just want to say that like super clear for everybody in terms of where you can find me, annieduke.com. That's a good place to go. If you want to see archives of my newsletters, if you wanted to communicate with me, You can contact me there. I do try to answer my readers as much as I can, depending on how full my inbox is. I really do try. Um, I'm on Twitter. Um, I'm on other social media, but I don't really personally open those 
places very much. So if you contact me on LinkedIn, I won't really know it. So if you want me personally, you should probably just go over to Twitter and that's where you're going to find me. Uh, and I do have a newsletter that you can um, obviously um, subscribe to. Uh, if you go to andyduke.com, you'll see that, that you can subscribe to it over there. And other than that, like hopefully you'll get to know me through my books. I mean, that's, that's kind of the main way that I hope that people get to know me in the way that I think and hopefully find something of value out of my own noodlings, which is kind of how I think about my books is me trying to think through problems. So well, once again, all that's linked up in the show notes, but Annie Duke, I can't thank you enough for joining us on what got you there. Well, thank you. You guys made it to the end of another episode of what got you there. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I really do appreciate you taking the time to listen all the way through. If you found value in this, the best way you can support the show is giving us a review, rating it, sharing it with your friends, and also sharing on social. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Looking forward to you guys listening to another episode.